Ladies and gentlemen, as part of the Jeremiah Show, welcome to It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. Now here's the host of the show, a man whose first day in Hollywood involved cocaine and Marlon Brando. It's TV's Tim Stack. Yeah! Show number 10, I believe. Oh my God, we've created a movement. It's just sweeping the world. Uh, hey everybody, Tim Stack here with another edition of It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. So the cocaine and Marlon Brando story uh, is, it wasn't my first day. I think it was my third day. And I've talked about this before. The only person I knew when I came to LA was a small time Coke dealer. And I never liked cocaine. I tried it once. It didn't work with my allergies. It just never happened. But I didn't know anybody. So I would call this guy and literally my third day, he said, come on, we're going to go to the William Morris office. I thought, oh my gosh. I'm going to William Morris. This is a big deal for me. I'm trying to be an actor, and I'm my third day in Hollywood. And we go there, and we're meeting an agent who is the cousin of some really big actor who just passed away recently. He might have been in The Godfather. I don't want to say the name. He might have played the older brother in The Godfather, but it was a cousin. And then the uh, the uh, writer-director, Robert Downey Sr., was in the office. So he's passed on, and he's also talked about his drug use, so I'm not talking out of school here. So, But uh, Downey had written a script, and it was getting a lot of heat, like Martin Mull, who one of our guests worked with. We'll talk about him later on. Um, and, and it was getting a lot of heat, and all of a sudden the agent said, I think we should call Brando. Meanwhile, the dealer, my friend, has dumped a large amount of cocaine on the desk in the William Morris office. And these three guys are using drugstore straws, like the long kind you get with a smoothie. And they're doing cocaine and talking about the script. And then suddenly on the speakerphone, they call Brando. And I'm in the back of the room. I, it's my third day, and I'm listening to this, and I'm witnessing this. It's all the cliches of Hollywood and cocaine. And then they call Brando. And Brandon was very, you hear the voice, uh, which I don't do a good impression of. And he's like, Bobby, I love the script. And I'm just so busy. And, and, uh, and meanwhile, these guys are continuing. They're, now they're more interested in their cocaine than they are in Brando. But that uh, was my third day. And uh, it was just like, wow, what have I gotten myself into? And I got myself into a 40-year career. So anyway, I have some really great friends and partners uh, who are the guests today. So let's. Richard, can we start the drum roll intro and I'll introduce them. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, my first guest, Jim Stein, wrote the first talking movie, The Jazz Singer, with Al Jolson. I'm just kidding. No, I did the silent version. <laughs> he wrote the subtitles in the silent version. I'm kidding. He wrote on shows like Sanford's on Fernwood Tonight, Silver Spoons. He made Rick Schroeder a Republican. Just kidding on that one again, too. And of course, the classics, Nightstand with Dick Dietrich and Son of the Beach starring me, there's Jim Stein, but don't give up that drum roll yet. <laughs> Dave Morgison, my other guest, is a writer-director who got his start in Yiddish theater writing jokes for Morty Gunty. I'm kidding again. <laughs> Nobody's going to know who Morty Gunty is. Kids love that joke. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah. He's written on a bunch of shows, was a longtime segment director on for the shows both Ellen and the Jimmy Kimmel Show, also an executive producer on Nightstand with Dick Dietrich and a co-creator of Son of the Beach with me. Anyway, his name is Dave Morgison. Give him a hand. Welcome, Jim and Dave. 
I haven't talked to you since this morning. This morning. No, we talk a lot. <laughs> but um, anyway, thank you. Thanks for doing this, guys. Uh, welcome. I, I want to throw it out to you because I, I want to hear everybody's version of how the three of us, or individually, how we met. So I'll, and then I'll give my version, which might be different. Who knows? So Dave, start with you because I met you first. Okay, so um, yeah, see, we, we've known each other for years, and we worked in the growing, burgeoning field of industrial comedy. Which you're going to have to uh, explain what that is. Okay, the oxymoron of corporate comedy. <laughs> um, basically, um, when Tim was with the Groundlings, a group of us would get together and we would entertain at uh, corporate functions like sales meetings, conventions, and things like that. But you had a whole business. That's what you did. Yes, yeah, that was my business. I'm from New York. And I, I had the business while I was in New York, and I basically, that's how I moved west. I just kept the business going, relocated out here, and then segued into the entertainment business from that. From that. And that's, so Tim and I worked, we did dozens of those type of shows at first, and we're friends a long time before we started working together. And so, um, yeah, and so Tim had invited me, uh, uh, he had the opportunity when he was creating the show Night's Day with Dick Dietrich. Um, he had hired me for the pilot. Hold on, hold pilot. on to that. Hold on to that for one second. Because I want to go back to the Groundlings. You were okay. with the Groundlings in New York. That's how you sort of met the Groundlings, which was a weird sort of offshoot because I think the only, but a lot of people took class there. Like, uh, well, first of all, Alan Kirschenbaum, late Alan Kirschenbaum, whose dad yeah. just passed away, Freddie Roman. Yeah, I noticed that. Yeah. Uh, that would be a fantastic memorial service, Freddie Roman's memorial service. Um, but you took class there and that's how you met the Groundlings. Yeah. Um, back in the eighties, they had, uh, the Groundlings had an offshoot called Groundlings East. Right. Later became something else, but it was Groundlings East. And I took classes from two longtime members of the Groundlings, uh, Randy Bennett and Charlie Prestia. Right. They basically ran the Groundlings East in, in, uh, in Manhattan. Into the ground so too. <laughs> yes yeah too. so i ran i i took uh two levels of classes at the grounding school groundlings east school and then uh so i happen to mention to them that i did these industrials the, the corporate stuff right and most like music videos slideshows things like that not really comedy yet but then they said well you know the groundlings are really getting into that and this guy tom maxwell who is like you know, um, one of the, the original, I think one of the original artistic directors of the Groundlings, one of the co-founders, um, he is interested in really expanding the Groundlings reach in the corporate field. And he's coming into town. So he'd like to meet with you. Okay. So that was the boss coming, you know, from the home office. Right. Basically, right. Visiting the, you know. Yeah. And so we met and that's when he told me that um, and we met, we had lunch and then we got into business together and, and, and we just just to talk a little bit about industrial comedy because dave would hire a bunch of us and they we would go on these trips to the company mostly the company's conventions so all the people that worked in this company were drunk the entire time like people just they were on their vacation they had won bonus points and they got invited to these conventions and so inevitably i would say dave nine times out of ten our jobs as groundlings were to do impersonations of the executives. Yes, that's what's great about the Groundlings. We kind of positioned it as sort of like SNL meets corporate America because it was more irreverent than your average 
corporate function. Right. And so, uh, yes, part of the job of the actors were to impersonate uh, uh, executives, which the audience loved, you know, oh. the working guys, people at the companies loved. And, um, you know, we had songs and sketches and everything. And the weird thing was, like, normally actors would, like, their call time might be 7 p.m. for an evening show at the Groundlings or whatever. Here, it was more like 7 a.m. Yes. Uh, which so you had to be careful the night before. Particularly like, but the good news was that by noon, we're pretty much done. We were done. And then, go ahead. Yeah, no. We, we, we were mostly we breakfast were shows. Done, yeah. Done. And then uh, within an hour, down by the pool with drinks in hand. Yeah, at the company's <laughs> expense. At the company's <laughs> expense. And they picked up everything, these companies. So they picked up your hotel room. I would go to hotel rooms and call long lost friends from college because back then you got charged for long distance. <laughs> so I would talk for hours to guys I went to college with because Casio's paying for it. Who cares? Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the company Casio, by the way, that was kind of oh that that was kind of an anomaly. Yeah. Because they were this one company that like had no rules. You know, it was it was chaos and it was so fun. And I had that was one of my first jobs. So I was under the mistaken impression that all companies were crazy and drunk yeah. and everything. No, no, no. there were some very serious companies. It was, well, yeah. And also, I, most companies had per diem, right? They right. give you X amount per day. Casio, like Tim just said, yeah. we're not per diem, but it's like, yeah, whatever. Whatever. Like, there are actors who went and got massages. Oh, I played golf at Doral on, on, on another company. <laughs> I do want to say, though, I've been asked this. What's the biggest laugh I ever got? And the biggest laugh I ever got was one of your shows yeah. for, for the National Semiconductor. I don't even know if they're still around, that company. <laughs> but the punchline, here was the punchline. Punchline was, what do I look like? The B-174? <laughs> <laughs> and I had to hold for four minutes. I am not exaggerating yeah. because these nerds, and, and there were 2,000 of them or something, and the B-174 was some horribly failed project that I'm sure 12 people were fired for, for creating, but it was like the big joke in the company, the B-174 yeah. or whatever it was, whatever the fuck. But I yeah. literally had to hold for four minutes. I looked out, and there were just nothing but nerds <laughs> from all over the world are just screaming, laughing so hard at the B-174. They're laughing so hard, their pocket protectors were jumping out of their pockets. <laughs> it was, it was, it, 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 yeah. The funny thing is, like, I used to write a lot of those things. And what I would do is, like, I'd visit the company and I'd sit down with these nerds in a room. Yeah. People from the audience would say, what would make you laugh? You know, that type of thing. And they say, oh, the B-174 is like, what a failure that's been. That product launch was just, you know, not good. And so I'd write it into the script. So the funny thing is that the actor, like Tim would say, B-174, and he didn't know it. <laughs> you know, he'd say it. Yeah, I had no idea. Why he me laugh. Yeah, I had no idea what I was saying. He didn't know, but he just, you know, yeah. you just go with it, right? It's like, <laughs> yeah, I, this is getting a laugh. I'm just going to milk it. I'm just going to sit here for four minutes and look at my watch. <laughs> <laughs> and wait for it to die down. And that was the funny part about doing those industrials is the actors didn't know. Well, I, I guess I hit upon something, you know. So, um, nope. so the, yes. So, so then when Nightstand with Dick Dietrich came around, we were looking for writers. I had worked with Dave and I thought, he, you know, he'd be really good for this show. And he was. So that, so we brought him in, which then led us to meeting my other guest, James R. Stein, Jim Stein with the uh -huh. fancy microphone. Who looks like he's on the uh, deluxe radio hour in 1940 there. That microphone. Is it's bigger than you, Jim. That microphone. 
First of all, this is my first podcast. Is so, it really? Uh, wow. Yeah, it's my first podcast. I'm using an iPad, so I think I'm supposed to look over here, right? You're Not doing just fine. That radio, that microphone is blocking everything. It's blocking the ocean <laughs> behind you. That's I'm how using, big it is. I'm using the Carry Lake filter, too. Oh, it's very the nice. filter is awesome. Yeah, oh, it's, it's, oh, thanks. it's really yeah. good. Yeah. A little vaccine on the lens. No, Jim, I'm using that, too. You got to look at the little tiny hole where the camera is. That's where you got to look. Okay. <laughs> okay. That's over here. Okay, so then, okay. which led us to meeting Jim Stein. And what happened was when we sold Nightstand, the guy, Larry Little, who's very good friends with Jim, who had this company called Big Ticket. And he was a cra- he's really the reason Nightstand with Dick Dietrich happened. It was Larry Little. And Larry said, look, there are a couple of writers I want on this. Uh, they worked on Fernwood Tonight. And I said, oh, my God, Fernwood Tonight. That Because Fernwood Tonight was to the Mike Douglas show what Nightstand with Dick, Dick, Dick Dietrich was to Jerry Springer. So I thought a spoof of a TV show, this guy worked on, to me, like the Bible of that Fernwood Tonight. And it was great. So Jim and his then partner, Bob Isles, came to work on the show. Anyway, I'm taking words out of your mouth, Jim, but that's, in essence, how No, it's, uh, please, take them all out. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've never done a podcast before. I don't know what I'm doing. Just, it's just talking. That's all it is. Um, just smoothly. Okay. You've done radio, Jim. You're, that's how you started. Well, that's, yes, that's, that's, that's where I got my start. You and, yes, you and Bob Isles. So I do, yeah. and we got about a minute to go, so I'll use that, Jim, because you came in, you had a partner. Bob Isles, mm-hmm. who you right. were with for 25 years or something, maybe we 20 years. We were together, years. yes, for that long. And very successful in the sitcom world, and the variety world. They had a major, major career. But here's what happened, everyone. And then we <laughs> fell on hard times, and I met you. <laughs> <laughs> they hit the skids, and they took a job on nightstand. But maybe that's true. <laughs> but here's what happened, is that Bob and Jim broke up their writing partnership right in front of our very eyes well i was left i did not uh i did not break this up but all i know is i remember getting a call we were at larry strother's house we were writing the show and i get a call from larry little and he's kind of like look i don't know what to say of this but uh stein and isles broke up and i said really (laughs) i said which one is staying (laughs) <laughs> Larry said one of them is staying and I said I hope it's Jim Stein because the other guy is just kind of a surly guy who who kind of like he, his laugh was nah, really no we can talk um, <laughs> this is where it gets me much. He, he was you're just not going to be like, Frank Sinatra and bring me together with him no 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 uh, there's somebody I wanted you to meet <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah, Isles would just, he would laugh, but he would laugh, and it was like a laugh growl. Like, his laugh was, <laughs> That's how, like, that was his version of laughing at a joke in a room. <laughs> <laughs> Which also annoyed me. I was glad to see him go. Not only did he not contribute, he had that weird laugh, so I was oh, glad to sigh. see him go. And Jim was such a great contributor, and obviously we went on, the three of us, to do Son of the Beach, which we're going to talk about on the other side of this break. You are listening to It's Ready with TV's Tim Stack. I'm going to plug two plugs. My boss is here at the Jeremiah Show, Jeremiah Higgins, uh, who uh, makes all this happen. Richard Dr. D. Dugan is our engineer. I do want to plug the show Sprung. It's out there on Amazon Freebie. If you haven't seen it, it's really, really wonderful, getting great notices, and, and it's just weird. It's on a channel people have a hard... They need a compass to find uh, <laughs> Freebie. 
Uh, but they're slowly finding us. So anyway, we're going to take a break. It's radio with TV's Tim Stack. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. It's Tim Stack from It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack asking you to watch the show Sprung on Freebie, Amazon's new free channel. I promise you it's funny. It's got heart. And my shoulder appears in episode three. Alan, you're a salty old sea biscuit. Do you know anything about clams? <laughs> Notch, I've probably eaten over 100,000 clams in my day. Maybe I hear more. Well, what do you make of this one? Sand. Ooh. That's a bad clam, all right. There's only one thing that can make a clam go bad like that. Lack of ventilation? No. Nuclear waste. Nuclear waste. <laughs> one of the 800,000 jokes we did on that show, Sound of the Beach. Um, so welcome back. It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack talking to Jim, James R. Stein, and Dave Morgison, my co-creators on that show, and also uh, Nightstand with Dick Dietrich. Um, they were not the co-creators, but the main writers of the show. Uh, along with yours truly. Um, so, guys, I want, uh, let me ask you this. I, I want you to talk about any recollections you have about selling Son of the Beach, because that was a crazy process of where it started and how it ended up. So, uh, Jim, start with you. Anything come to mind? Well, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, what about uh, when you um, took it to Howard? I think that's probably the start of it, right? I mean, yeah, we, we had, had the idea. Right. We had met over at Dave's house. We had lunch, and we were trying to come up with a show, and it and and for me to star in, this is post-Nightstand, and we watched, uh, Dave had a copy of Police Squad, and we watched it, and we were laughing, like, why can't we do that? And then, let's come up with something. And I thought about that. I had written it as a treatment not starring me um that actor chris mcdonald i thought would be right in it son of the beach and they were and jim and they were like no no no, that's it it's you it's you and you know so it becomes get smart at the beach and so we developed it and then yeah then i we took it to howard we i think we tried to sell it once through don buckwald right don buckwald we signed up with don buckwald right and i think we did tim bring it someplace like without pre-howard pre-howard Yeah. In fact, I I think I can say this. I think the guy who eventually canceled us, we pitched it to originally. (laughs) I think, Uh no, it was Kevin Riley, I think, who was Uh at Brillstein, and we pitched it to him, and we never heard back, or we got lukewarm response or something. And then years later, he ended up being at FX, and he was the guy who kind of pulled the plug on us, uh, which is a weird turn. Um, So, Dave, the thing is, is, though, we did when he pulled the plug on us we had done 44 episodes which today would be five seasons of a you know episode show we'd be yeah. a legend yeah. with that number of episodes <laughs> in today's no it's really true like and when i say about nightstand we did 96 episodes people are like what that's impossible <laughs> no that's what we did 96 episodes shows used in two, to years. In two years yeah yeah 96 yeah and son of the beach was yeah, I think, we w- we wouldn't be basking in all those profits if um 
we had just done 10 or eight. <laughs> Jim wouldn't have that ocean behind him. If we had just, you know, it. I think I, I was under the impression that we went to FX before Howard and they liked it. No. But then we came in with Howard or something. No, I, and correct me if I'm wrong. What I remember was Howard came out and yes. he had a limo and we yeah. couldn't all get in the limo. So I went with an actress who ended up being on the show, Kim Oya. Howard and Don, and we hit like six places. I should also say that the idea of bringing an actress in and acting out a scene started on Nightstand with bringing in Judy Toll from the Groundlings to actually act out a scene for the buyers. And it's really a great way to sell a show. Now you'd never do that because we don't have live meetings anymore. Uh, so, you know, but um, it, now you'd have to go out and shoot it. Um, but anyway, um, we went out and we went to like six places and there was some interest. And then Howard went back to New York and Jim, your friend, Jeremiah Bosgang was at FX. Yes, Jeremiah. Yeah, I, um, <clears throat> I was instrumental in getting uh, Jeremiah Bosgang a job. He, he was uh, um, an improv actor and did a lot of things uh, along the way. And, and uh, my friend was Rick Ludman, who ran N uh, NBC Variety. And he was looking for somebody. And I met this guy at a Thanksgiving or something like that. And I said, well, maybe this guy would be good for because uh, he'd worked on Letterman and. But hadn't he installed Larry Little's television or something? Uh, that's a yeah. Well, no, he, yeah, he was friends of some friends who were there that night, and and as I remember it anyway. Um, the point is, he he um, got this job with uh, Rick Ludwin, and he's got a whole story to tell. Where where did we just hear that? Uh, we just heard his whole story. Told. Hey, it was on oh, a right, Seinfeld uh, podcast. Yeah. So in any case. To make a long story short, no way, it's too late now. Um, <laughs> he 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 got a uh, uh, he got this job with uh, Rick Ludwin, and then he went to Fox, and then he went to FX, and it was a last ditch effort. It was they had gone everywhere with uh, Howard. You know, of course, everybody wanted a meeting with Howard, and right. that's really what it was you know, about. Struck out, and so. Um, I called him on the outside chance that he might be interested in a show like this. You know, I didn't think we had much of a chance, but turns out they were looking for something that was really male skewing and FX, as well as uh, all the other Fox, I think, cable networks were not on in New York because Ted Turner was running, uh, um, you know, Time Warner Cable at the time. And they wouldn't let Fox on because Fox was competing with their news, their CNN, and they were going to be on the air in two years. So um, when we got how when I think Peter Ligori, who was running FX at the time that uh, Jeremiah was working under, when he heard that uh, we could get Howard Stern involved in a show that he would pump like crazy, which he did, it got FX on the air in New York like two years in advance of when they were supposed to go on the air because people were demanding they see Son of the Beach, right. Howard Stern's new show. And that's that. Yeah. So um, you can edit it. You can edit it. There's <laughs> <laughs> Jim, they already have that whole monologue's already been taken out. <laughs> okay. That's how good Dr. D is. Um, so 
So I'm better can... when I can write it all out, you know, like. <laughs> well, you're a writer. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about, so Dave, anything to add there on the selling of Son of the Beach? Anything come to mind? No, I just remember, um, you said you guys were in, in the limo, and I remember I was sitting at home one day in my home office, I was working, and the phone rings, and I'm like, hello, it goes, Hey, Dave, it's Howard. Howard Stern. I never <laughs> talked to Howard before. Now, I'm a longtime listener, a huge fan of Howard. Like when he was on in New York in the 80s on WANBC, um, I listened to him in the afternoons. You know, he was really hardcore then, in, in my opinion, at his funniest. Um, he was great. And I was always a huge fan. In fact, I was supposed to go in for a job interview to interview to be a producer for Howard's NBC network radio show, the network show. And on the day I was supposed to go in to drive in from New Jersey at the time, I heard Howard was fired from NBC. <laughs> so that was, a <laughs> what very was his good. network. What was his network show? It was, I don't I know. Heard it, was of that. Be, it was just going to be an NBC radio. Oh, it network. wasn't on the air. No, but, but oh. uh, I, we had a mutual acquaintance, a radio executive and I, that was my background. I started in radio. I worked everywhere from Columbus, Ohio to New York City. I worked at two stations in New York. So we traveled kind of in the same radio circles, but had never met. And so this mutual acquaintance said, this executive said, look, I'm going to, I want, I think Howard would really like you. And we're doing a network show. I want you to go in as producer. So you're going to meet with Howard and with uh, his producer, Gary, Baba Bowie. And so, uh, a friend said, you know what? This sounds like a publicity stunt, Howard getting fired. I would go in anyway, because you know they're not going to fire Howard. And so the day I was supposed to go in, I was calling frantically. And finally, finally, Baba Bowie picked up. And I said, hey, Gary, it's Dave Morgan. I'm supposed to come in today to talk to you guys. Um, I understand this firing may be a publicity stunt. just want to confirm that. He goes, oh, man, I wish it was a publicity stunt. Howard's and Robert are both outside in the street. I'm just coming to get the last couple of boxes. We've been fired, man. Do not come. Wow. And so years and years later, I talked when I talked to Gary, when we were doing Son of the Beach, he absolutely remembered that. Um, along with the phony phone call I made to Frank Sinatra, which we'll get into later. Um, <laughs> and and, and uh, he remembered that. And he also remembered. We may be running out of time. You should now. No, no, no. We're good. Keep going. Okay. Dave. All right. Anyway, so. When I met with Howard, he and he remembered that he was supposed to have a network radio show. And he goes, oh, you're the guy. It's like, <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah, 15 years later, whenever it was. So I finally got to meet him. And then when I met with Howard, it was great because we talked shop because we knew all the same like radio people. So it was really interesting. And when I met later, met Jimmy Kimmel, he was also had a radio background. So we all said, you know, you know, it's radio. That's um, so funny. Uh, uh, Greg Garcia, the guy I'm working for now on Sprung, just met Jimmy Kimmel. And all they talked about was radio, and Kimmel was, yeah. like, really psyched just to talk about radio. Like, that's his first love, I think, was radio. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, when I was working there, I'd be, like, in the edit bay, just, like, cutting a piece that I shot, because I directed for him. And it's like, so what stations did you work for before you went to New York? You know, I'm, like, <laughs> texting. Just, and he's upstairs in his office, and we're texting back and forth. Did you ever work with this guy? I'm going, yeah, I knew him. I never worked with him. Yeah, he was really into radio. Same with Howard. So it's like this fraternity. And that's where I thought I'd be. I went to college for radio. I thought I would be. I used to hang around at NBC at 30 Rock as a high school student. I was on this high school station. I interviewed Don Imus, Wolfman Jack, all these other people for a radio show that I did. And it's so funny, turning it back to Jim. Jim, you also did that in Chicago. Well, in Chicago, yeah, I... Um 
I uh, would call. I first of all, I, how old were you at this point? Ago. You would call up hotels and ask. I t- call hotels. Yes, tell the story. It's fantastic. Yes. It's no, no, no. I, I would call up hotels and I'd say, uh, "Is Elizabeth Taylor there?" I mean, I put on a radio voice, you know, right. because but I was how old twelve years old. Time? And I'd say, "Is uh, Elizabeth Taylor there?" This is Jim Sign from WNTH Radio. And that's was and, your high school uh, radio station. They put her on the phone. I mean, you could do that in those <laughs> days. They didn't have the phony names, but whatever, you know, they just put you through. And uh, so I interviewed Louis Armstrong and Jesse Owens and Maury Amsterdam. <laughs> but didn't you also uh, go to some hotel rooms where people were perf- like, and also I should mention that, that Jeff Price, who went on to have a movie writing career, Roger Rabbit and uh, the Grinch, would also he was kind of your sidekick in this we um, we may have done one or two together but this was I, you I was really driving the, ship. the guy and, right you know we'd have this giant voice of music tape recorder that you know weighed about a hundred pounds literally and you know i'd have to take it up so i sometimes i'd have somebody else with me to just get the uh, tape recorder up <laughs> the uh anyway and, and so, so you would so sometimes we did, so call, we did all those interviews. And I, would you I, go I to the hotel or the interviews? Were they d- actually did a PB, a, NPR or PBS? One of those people did a uh, animated version of some of that interview um, with, with me as uh, it's you know, so funny, the thirteen-year-old or fourteen-year-old, right? And and what would happen? Like you'd knock on the door; they're expecting some DJ. And they knock on the door and a 13-year-old kid, like, <laughs> right. at their hotel room. What was the reaction? Well, uh, uh, you know, uh, they were very, all very nice, I have to say. Everybody was really nice to me. Except for Maury Amsterdam. He got a little testy because I had my set of prepared questions. And, you know, I'd say, so how did you get started? And he'd go into this thing and he said, well, you know, I was in the Army and I was in the USO. And were you ever in the Army? Well, I can see why. And he said, "You're not listening." I think we did that joke on Nightstand, the pilot Nightstand, that uh, Doug Cox with somebody in the audience. That's really funny. uh, Yeah, we did. Yeah, Yeah. but you know, I was I was too nervous to you know just wing it. I I had my questions. Okay, we're going to take another break. You're listening to Jim Stein and Dave Morgison. my partners on many shows and movies and we'll talk about all that on the other side of the break it's radio with tv's tim stack by the way how the hemorrhoids terrific i just saw them in florida they send their regards hey i want you to meet kimberly clark she's my number two yeah you must be selling your nuts by the sack full Kimberly, the king here has got the biggest, most tender nuts on the island. Uh, As a child, I'd spend hours sucking on the king's nuts. I'd roll them around in my mouth. You know what, Kimberly, it's strange. His nuts are hard, yet juicy. Nuts. Okay, I've I've got it. No, Kimberly, it's true. Nothing would give me more pleasure than watching Notch stuffing my nuts into his mouth. (laughs) All right. That was a sweaty balls joke before they did sweaty balls. I'll just give that run. There you go. uh, I'll I'll give that run uh, some credence. Can we air that? And Pat Morita... Joe was the king there. Um, I don't think we'll be saying that's who played the king of Hawaii, who had a who had a macadamia nut farm on Hawaii. That's right. Just yeah. qualifying all that. Anyway, he just loved uh, doing the part and doing that uh, doing that bit. It was very hard getting him to not laugh uh, during that. Bit. 
Um, it was also one of the coldest days of shooting Sun of the Beach. We were out in Pasadena, and it was just really, really cold that day. And we were supposed to be in Hawaii, and anyway, um, Pat Marita. Yeah. So, um, so Jim. Yes. Go back a little bit before, uh, because I also want to tell people about little Jimmy Stein, because oh, before radio, way you, back. that's way back. You were a kid, yeah. and you would perform yeah. under the handle of little Jimmy Stein, and you were like your correct. own song and dance man. Is that right? I in Chicago. I, I was a, um, I was the uh, child version of Elvis Presley. You know, I was, <laughs> I, I would Elvis Presley was the king, and uh, I would go on these amateur hours. <laughs> I think it was more my mother maybe, wanted. Maybe you know, Jesse Presley, the twin who died, but keep going. <laughs> <laughs> maybe Jesse. <laughs> um, so anyway, my mother would, would kind of like, you know, I was probably singing along to records and she right. probably said, oh, isn't that cute? You know, let's, let's, let's put them on a, one of these amateur hours. And so, you know, it wasn't, it, it, they were like, they were like uh, American Idol but you didn't win a million dollars. I you got won some a detergent or something. And, <laughs> and, uh, um, so I went on these shows and I would sing, you know, these the songs and, and then what was your top song? Well, I, I sang uh, a medley of, uh, <laughs> love me tender and too much. And, uh, Oh, so you would really one? do Elvis uh, songs. You'd really do love me tender. What's that? You would really do Love Me Tender, Elvis's. Yeah, 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 Tender. yeah. Unfortunately, I have recordings of this, which, you know, one day they'll dig out. But uh, yeah, fortunately, while I'm fortunately, alive. <laughs> fortunately, I have them, too. Uh-oh. <laughs> Jim, dial, oh. or Dave, dial <laughs> them up. If you can dial them up on your computer while we're doing this, that would be fantastic. In any, but I just, in any case, I, um, I was doing this, and then uh, we moved to the suburbs from Chicago. And uh, I was supposed to sing Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer at a uh, school event. And uh, what this a kid song. came up to me. This kid came up to me and he said, that's sissy. Uh, and I never sang again. That's all it took. That's all it took. Oh, what the world. That guy, whoever that was, boy, the talent he yeah. kept from the world. Imagine if he had said that to Sinatra. Yes. You know. <laughs> um, speaking of which, Dave, you had mentioned you did a prank phone call to Sinatra. Why, yes, I did, Tim. And uh, <laughs> it's on well, that the was sheet. A good transition. It's wow. on the sheet right there. Oh, I see. Oh, wow. Well done. Well done. I'm just reading questions like Jim did. So were you ever on amateur hours? <laughs> Uh, seriously, you did a Frank. I never knew this. You did a prank call to Frank Sinatra. Of course, you knew it. I didn't know that. I know. All no, no. No, oh, no, no, come no. on! You knew I, that. I did it as Bob Hope. Remember? To Frank Sinatra Jr. Okay, no, 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 no. You going to set the stage or awesome? Oh, no, okay, no, okay. No, it's oh, Bob Hope stuff. Let's save that for the last segment because I'm playing a clip that'll set that up. Okay. Okay. So. um Back to little Jimmy Stein. No, I'm just kidding. Yes. <laughs> um, so, Dave, let's go over to Dave for a second. So, Dave, um, you did a lot of the segment directing for Jimmy Kimmel. And just talk about that, because if you go online and look at these things, 
they're really, really funny. Like you did one with uh, Shirley Jones and uh, Cloris Leachman. Right. That that's on YouTube, right? Yeah, that was a that one was a parody of Cougar Town called um, Sabretooth Tiger Town. Right. About these old. <laughs> yeah. About these really, really old horny women. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was great. It got me. I I didn't. I was just on board um, as a director of the. You know, like the monologue bits that Kimmel does, commercial parodies, all fake press conferences, all that stuff. Um, and it was great. Uh, so that's so I also got a chance to work with Eminem and a whole bunch of other people. Yeah, it's uh, really cool that. stuff. And, and, and it's all really super well directed. The other thing I want people to go see that Dave did is and there's a series of them <clears throat> where uh, with you can explain, Dave, but all the David Blaine stuff, this making fun of David Blaine. They're all on YouTube, and they're really, really funny. Mikey Day is in them. Mitch Silpa, go ahead. You explain. Well, yeah. Um, it's weird because I, I sort of just, um, I took an, I, I was a writer for years and years, and I took like a weird left turn in the middle of things. It's like I saw this stuff, this online stuff, like really taking off. You know, YouTube was fairly new. And I remember saying to my agent at the time, it's like, boy, I'd really love to get involved in this online stuff. But it's like, you know, I've got a family and a mortgage and I can't like go into the garage and edit videos like these 22 year olds are doing. I mean, I got to get paid. And he said, well, you know, you have this startup. HBO is doing this uh, comedy website in conjunction with AOL, both divisions of at the time, Time Warner and a horrible marriage, by the way, HBO and AOL, two entirely different corporate cultures. But anyway, so we had this website. So they hired me as an executive producer and it's like, okay, I mean, an executive producer can be a nebulous title anyway. Right. <laughs> and here it's like an online or website, which I never worked for. So it's like, well, they said, well, do what you want. I'm like, Jesus. I'm, I said, well, the thing I know is like comedy, short comedy video. It's like, so what I did was like from my background experience with the groundlings, it's like, I went to a groundling show. It's like, that's like, you know, like Lauren Michael scouts talent there. That's how he picks them. So it's like I sat in the back and just watched several shows. And the thing that really brought down the house that particular night when I went was this David Blaine parody. David Blaine, David Blaine's street magic. Um, when mm. this guy uh, playing David Blaine would have these two guys, one of them being Mikey Day um, and another one being Michael Naughton. And um, he would know everything about them. So rather than just. So first they were amazed and amused, and then they were terrified of the state of Blaine. Like right. he knew way too much about them. So that was right before um, the break in the show. And so, uh, but that got one of the biggest laughs I've ever seen at the Groundlings Theater. I've seen some pretty funny things there. It's a huge laugh. So after I went up to them and said, hey, um, you guys interested in doing some viral videos based on this David Blaine thing? So they'd already done one, like, on their own, like in back of the Groundlings Theater, kind of a quick one off, and it got a lot of uh, great reviews. So uh, I said, well, let's do sequels. So we started shooting. We did the second one, third one, fourth one. And the concession with all of them was like the way they wrote, these guys wrote it was like, uh, there can't be any cuts. It's got to be one continuous shot. And I'm like, well, you have two locations in the script. How do we do that? You know, they said, oh, well, Michael's apartment is in Burbank, the back of an alley. So basically, we're starting the alley, and then we, we just keep the camera running, and you follow us running into his apartment. Like, okay. So it was really, uh, I was a little nervous, but it's it like turned out really great. And it's like one continuous shot for five minutes, 
And I said, why do you want it like that? And they said, because the real David Blaine, if he was on TV, there would be no edits or else people would say it's cheating. Right. Funny. So, right. so it's, really, it's really, really great. If you get on YouTube, look for them. They're really, really funny. So let's go back to Jim for a second. Jim, you before we met on Nightstand, you really had had, uh, I mean, just, I'm just going to look at some of the credits here. Uh, you wrote on the Carol Burnett show. You wrote for Carol Burnett. You wrote for Mary Tyler Moore, the Mary Tyler Moore Variety Hour. Fernwood tonight, we talked about Sanford and Son. What was Red, you wrote of Sanford and Son. Did you get to meet Red Fox? Uh, I never met Red Fox, but, oh, I don't know if I could tell this joke. But I went to the, uh, uh, I went to the show when they were doing our script. And, you know, Red Fox told this, you know, very ethnic audience, um, you know, mostly probably because I did a show called Amen. They, they, they mainly come from churches and places like that. He told this joke, which I guess I can't say here. But, but um, it's a horrible, uh, dirty, racist joke. No, it wasn't racist. It's just horrible and dirty. <laughs> yeah. Dirty. So anyway, um, I mean, I could do the I can, uh, no, don't worry about it. We get it. So, right. I can do the punchline. No, the same thing happened on Nightstand. So One I, night on Nightstand. The punchline punch was, so I drove her to El Segundo. Okay. <laughs> that sounds like the B-174 joke. <laughs> so, and now you also wrote a Cosby. Did you get to meet Bill Cosby? Yeah, well, Bill Cosby actually, I hate to say, made me a writer. <laughs> really? Um, because did he, did he offer uh, you a latte well, before he did? <laughs> What's that? Did he offer you a latte before he did? <laughs> uh, Wake up. You're a writer. It was, it, it was Where are my clothes? Oh, ah, it doesn't era. matter. No. You're a writer now. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So what happened was that, um, uh, God, I have to go back a little bit, but my partner and I were doing a radio show. Um, you know, there was a guy named Digby Wolf who um, was one of the co-creators of Laughing, and uh, uh, he was teaching one of the classes at the USC where I was going, and and he said he was going to be do- producing a NBC special, and uh, uh, he was going to have a monologue writing contest. You know, whoever won, whoever wrote the best monologue was going to get a job on this network show that really? he was doing. Um, and NBC Network show. So, um, you know, we, we, my partner and I, Bob Isles, we, we wrote this, uh, these monologues. They are horrible. They probably not. And every week he would come to class and say, I'm going to announce the winner next week. I'm going to announce the winner next week. I'm going to announce the winner next week. It's like Finally, a game show. It's like, like a, a star <laughs> And uh, he hadn't announced the winner. And he said, I'm going to let the winner know by mail. <laughs> so we're checking the mailbox every day and whatever. Nothing. I got Isles. This is a good part of having a partner. I got Isles to call the guy. And you could have Isles done that yourself, but won. I understand. Ever since little Jimmy Stein, you've never been able to exert yourself when the guy no. called you a sissy. Okay, so Isles calls. Isles calls and he says, Who won? And Digby said, You did. So to this day, I don't know that. You know, there was anything about the monologue that so, but it, it may have been just the fact that we called and we got paid a lot of money to do this. I mean, it was like, you know, an actual network writer. Fee. Wow. So I was sold. That kind of and, stuff does not happen now. That's a crazy story. 
Yeah, it's a crazy story. And then, and then, so then Digby was going to be co-producing with George Slaughter uh, this new Bill Cosby variety show, which was 24 episodes guaranteed on CBS, you know, with guest stars like Peter Sellers and oh, whatever. Yeah. Quincy Jones was the band leader. I mean, it was like, you know, it's legit. they got it's the legit best as comedy writers in yeah. town. And, um, and, and so um, they hired us not as writers, but as researchers, they were going to pay us really well, but we were going to be basically under the table writers. Gotcha. Thanks to Digby. And, and then, and then, uh, um, the rest and then, is- so, so, so we had all these great writers and, and Cosby called us into a rehearsal hall one day because they had just produced the first script. And I mean, these guys wrote for, you know, all the biggies and you know and there were people like pat mccormick on the staff and you know that's a whole other but in any case um cosby looked at the script with all these writers around he said this is i'll say crap you can say that he said get me one of those and he pointed to a typewriter and some of that he pointed to the paper and i'll write the show and that was my introduction to Bill Cosby and to, you know, how writers can be treated in, in Hollywood. And, uh, of course, he never wrote anything. Right. Um, but, you know, my partner and I, we saw an opportunity. Because none of these guys had taken the time to listen to a Bill Cosby album. You but know? you knew and them. It, you know, his style is so easily duplicated. Right. We started writing monologues for him. And he liked them. And then he and then he liked them and he was going like, well, who are these guys writing these monologues? Okay. And uh, it was us and we weren't even in the Writers Guild. And he insisted, as did some other writers, that we become part of the Writers Guild. And then then our salary went. And you became writers. And that's when you had the latte. Okay, yeah. we're gonna take <laughs> we're gonna take another break, our final break on its radio with TV's Tim Stack, talking to Dave Morgerson and Jim Stein, and we'll be right back. Hey, it's Tim Stack, and having been in show business for so long, I have a lot of really funny friends, and you can hear them all on its radio with TV's Tim Stack. That's part of the Jeremiah Show. So listen. shows being canceled on TV. In all, 34 shows were canceled. It's the worst thing that's happened to television since General Ben ate his acting coach. <laughs> and it was real sneaky the way they canceled Hogan's Heroes. When they came up out of the escape tunnel, they found themselves in the unemployment office. I, I looked for Bob Hope clips yesterday and came up with that one. Um, so uh, the reason I played a Bob Hope clip is because you know we always and there's some videos out there somewhere but like behind the scenes on son of the beach and people always want to know like what was howard like what was he like and it was like he was great he was so much fun but especially during the pilot when he was out because somehow he and dave and jim and i loved laughing at it he and dave would or howard and dave would do dueling bob hopes so Dave, do a little bit of Bob Hope for everybody. All right. So just this, um, let me just preface it by saying this is not remotely accurate. Um, <laughs> basically, what, what it is, it's like 
It's taking Dave Thomas's uh, impersonation that he did on SCTV. Which he broke really, the barrier. He really broke the barrier. He broke the barrier to the Bob Hope. He cracked the code to do the Bob Hope. Right. And what I did is I took that impersonation and I aged it like 50 years. So, right. so it's like old, cranky old Bob, Bob Hope. Which was <laughs> decrepit, demented, just sick. And we had heard some stories about, about Bob Hope behind the scenes, which were a little racy. And so we incorporated all this into a brew. So it's like, you know, so back in the day, it would be like, hey, I ain't doing ladies and gentlemen, isn't that something? Good crap, you know, like that. But then it's like the version, like in the writer's room, was like Bob would be falling apart and I'd be falling off the chair and going, yeah, isn't that something? Yeah, and he looked like he had palsy. You hear something wrong with his head of stroke, you know? And I'd say, yeah, Tim, now is good. You know, that reminds me of the time that I, what was I saying? I think anyway, what? You know, and he'd just be so. Uh, yeah, so as Tim said, Howard and I would be doing that. But he also, you guys uh, would get really dirty, too, which we can't do. There, Except we do. you do think like, I'm going to do you now, doing Dave Thomas. You do things like, yeah, I had Lola Falano in the back of a car one night. That kind of stuff. Yeah, hey, Lola. Yeah, nice, nice to see you. You want the job? You know what you got to do. You know. So uh, <laughs> oh. that, and, and I remember being on the set filming the pilot, which was fantastic. First of all, because we were like out on the beach, right? Yes. Like we were Santa Monica. We're filming out on the beach. And like one of the first scenes, so Howard and I are right behind the director. We're sitting in director's chairs and, and we're sitting there. And Howard, we kept switching off between doing Bob Hope and Johnny Carson. Yes. Howard, Howard liked to go, yeah, you know, and, and, <laughs> and I was doing Johnny and he was doing Johnny. And then we came down to him doing Johnny and me doing Bob Hope. And so he's going, Oh, uh, Mr. Hope, uh, let me ask you this question. Why is it, Johnny? You know, and, and so the director actually had to turn around and say, would you guys please shut up? Yeah. He's trying to film here. And it's just so funny. And Howard goes, now you freaking got me into trouble. You just got me into trouble. And I said, that was your fault, Howard. I was sitting here quiet. And we're just like, this is during the pilot. So it's, like, I don't know how this votes. I think serve. eventually they had to get you to like your own monitor. Because, yeah. and, and here's the thing. Nobody else on the set except me, Jim, Dave, and Howard remotely liked this bit yeah. or got yeah. it. Like We're the only one, even including yeah. Don Buckwald, was just rolling his eyes, like, "Yeah, that's kind of funny, I guess." But but between Howard and Dave doing Johnny or Bob Hope, it kept the four of us really amused uh, during some you know long hours. And then again, it's cold on the beach. You guys weren't in bathing suits; it was cold out there. No, no and and and. and uh, and Howard used to want me to call his show at five in the morning as Bob Hope. So I became like a, for a while, like right. a phone in for Howard. Yeah. Right. And so how did the Frank Sinatra thing go down? Oh, okay. So that was actually before we met Howard Stern. That happened during the. No, break. that wasn't. That was, oh, that no. was. You're right. It was Nightstand. Hold on. Okay, I'm hold sorry. On. Yeah. So the very last week of production for Nightstand, and I mean the last okay. final season, the very last week, all the other writers were gone. You were down rehearsing on the stage. Right. And, and Jim and I were, were both sitting in the writer's room by ourselves in this giant writer's room across from each other, both feet up on the table reading newspapers. You know, our heads are buried in the newspapers. And so Jim goes, hey, it looks like Sinatra's had another heart attack. He's in the hospital. And I'm like, oh, where? And he goes, Cedars. And so then Jim says, I got an idea. It'd be funny if you <laughs> you tried to get Frank Sinatra on the phone, call the hospital as Bob Hope. 
And I'm like, and of course, you know, because we are who we are, I said, you know, Jim, that sounds, that's a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> like, that is brilliant. Rather than saying, you are out of your mind, I'm like, that's great. Let's get a phone. So we got a phone and we called Cedars. And uh, I'm saying it's like, yeah, Frank Sinatra, please. And it's like, this is Bob Hope, you know, and he goes, well, uh, Mr. Sinatra uh, is not here at Cedars. I said, come on, Tuts, I read the papers. I know he's there. And I put me through to the chairman's room. <laughs> and, and, and Jim's laughing. And then in the middle of so while we're doing this, Tim is walking by in his suit. He just came back from a dress rehearsal. He's walking by and he sticks his head in to see what we're doing. And so Jim now's, we're calling Frank Sinatra in the hospital. Bob <laughs> and Jim goes, great. I'll go tape it in the other room. And so Tim goes into you know, another room and has like a micro cassette recorder, something like that. This. Puts it on a speakerphone and he records the rest of it. And so as Bob Hope, I keep getting up closer and closer to speak to Sinatra. Never make it. I'm right outside his door. You got to the head nurse, oh. though. I remember the head nurse was really friendly. It was really friendly. Oh, Mr. Hope, we work together at such and such a company. I'm like, and she goes, remember, my name is Charlie. Uh, it's difficult to forget a gal named Charlie, I'll tell you that. <laughs> you know, and, and, and Tim tapes the whole thing. And so it's like, and so I say, and finally, when I get through you know, to this nurse, and she goes, well, can I take a message? He's taking a nap. Is he okay? Is he able to go to the potty? Is he all right? He's walking around. What's going on with him? And she goes, can I give a message? I, and I said, all right, dear, uh, dear uh, Frank, hey, Francis, uh, Get get better and get get the heck out of there. <laughs> love, love Dolores and Bob a buoy hope. <laughs> Just let me read that back. Dolores and Bob a buoy hope. Yeah, that's a little in joke we got. Bob a buoy, Bob a buoy. And then that, what happened was uh, Tim gets it on tape. We don't know Howard, but we're right before yeah. the show on the E Network. Yeah, Night Stand, then followed by Howard. So Tim FedExes it to Howard Stern. To Gary and like I think the next day they played it yeah. on the air. We were that's so funny. We tried to do everything we could to get it's interesting coming back to Howard then outside of the beach because during yeah. Nightstand we did everything we could to get Howard to talk about Nightstand and we were on right before him, but he wouldn't do it. We did a we did a we did a Howard reference on the show. We did which they've since used on that show as a as a promo. But um that's so funny. I forgot the whole history of how that got to Howard. Yeah, yeah. Then when we went up there, for, the whole cast uh, went up there, and we went up there for an interview when he was at K-Rock in New York, and I reminded Gary of that, and Gary took me through all these hallways back to his computer in his office, and he showed me where it says, Bob Hope calls Frank Sinatra in hospital. He had it in the database, and it was just so funny, but that's, yeah, before we even knew Howard, um, we did that bit. Uh, we played it. That's so great. So... Uh, we're running out of time here, Dave. I'm looking at all my notes here, all the promo. One thing I do want to promote of ours, which I realized Dave had posted on the internet. If you go on the internet, uh, Jim, Dave, and I with Maz Jabrani and Courtney Cox and a rest of a really great cast put together an eight-minute animatic that's on YouTube called Red, White, and Lou. Uh, that's really, really funny and in Fox should have bought it and they didn't. And, uh, you know, Jim's got that ocean view. He's going to buy the project back. 
and that ocean view is going to help us make that animated show. But uh, I wanted to promote that. Um, I wouldn't buy that crap. Uh, it's it was so like a really tight eight minutes that's worth seeing um, out there. Uh, I, there's so much more things I wanted to talk about. I wanted to talk about how Jim had fired Mike Ovitz, the most powerful agent oh, in yeah. Hollywood. Well, and, and it's so funny on two different occasions. Like I was at a Lakers game when somebody had given me a courtside seat and I was next to Ovitz and he said he loved nightstand, which was like, wow, that's cool. And I said, you know, it was on the show. Uh, it was right on the show. Jim Stein. And immediately he said, he fired me. <laughs> he fired me. <laughs> like, like I didn't he, know that one. Okay. Yeah. And Dave, <laughs> you have a follow up to that, right? What's that? You have a follow up to that, right? The Mike Ovitz story. Yeah. Don't you? No. No, no, I, I, I want to tell the story about when you pulled that guy's pants down. But uh, uh, go ahead. Oh, uh, it was one of the. That was the biggest laugh. I've that ever. was the. That was might be the longest laugh in network. Yes, the longest laugh ever. Syndicated. It was, it was. It was a night stand with Dick Dietrich, and Dick was supposed to. Um, there was a guy supposed to come out, and he was trying to. It was about computer dating, and there was this woman who refused to go out with anybody. I guess, and she just wanted to be on her own. And so, I guess, what about this guy? And so we hired some male model, I guess. Yes. And he comes out, I guess. Uh, and so what do you think? And he goes, she goes, oh, he's okay. And then, I, then, then Tim rips, then Dick Dietrich rips the guy's shirt off. And he goes, how about now? And he was really cut, ah. really buff. Yeah. You're really buff guy. And then it's like, no, nah, I'm not sure. He goes, well, what if we did this? And then he was basically supposed to take down, I think, his sweatpants. He had sweatpants on. He was going to have boxer shorts on underneath. Boxer shorts underneath. So... That, that worked out fine during the rehearsal. Yes, but the actual taping, he goes and he pull the down, and he ends up pulling his underwear down as well. So the guy's naked in front, front of the studio audience, and and that's it. And the audience, him and I were across the way. We were upstairs uh, in the writers' room in the offices, and we're watching on a monitor, right? So that's when he does it. We see this. Tim disappears. Dick Dietrich disappears I was so embarrassed. Curtain. I was beyond <laughs> embarrassed. And Jim oh and I, God. We, Jim and I, we go downstairs and we walk across, go into the studio, and the laughter's still going on yes. when we arrive. Went for several more minutes. And, and that was the longest that, laugh ever. That made, <laughs> believe it or not, I got a bunch of residual checks because Dick Clark's bloopers used to air that thing. <laughs> they put a blue circle over the guy's equipment, <laughs> but they would air that clip all the time. Oh, yeah. Of, oh, yeah. Uh, of me pulling that guy's pants down. He was really a nice guy about, like, I, I mean, he could have sued us and he just, anyway, uh, not to take right, any right, money, but. Uh, you didn't even mention Dick Clark when you did it. You, you came back, you were mortified. You were uh, really mortified. You came back. And you said, we've been trying to get on Dick Clark's blooper show for a oh, while. that's funny. <laughs> and it worked. It actually worked. Yeah, I think that clip is on YouTube, too. If you if you go, like, Nightstand with Dick Dietrich bloopers, I think that clip will show up, and it's really but funny. I may have posted it. So, you, yeah, I think I have that on my, my YouTube account. Okay. Unfortunately, our time with Jim and Dave has come to an end. That sad yeah. song, that Carol Burnett who Jim wrote for at one time. Song is playing. But thank you, guys. Thanks so much for doing this. Thank you to and, Jeremiah. And I have to get to my job at Best Buy. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jeremiah, this is all part of the Jeremiah Show. It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. So thank you, Jeremiah Higgins, who's here with us today. And Dr. D, thank you. And I'll see you next time on It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. As always, a big thanks to our station manager, Les Carroll, for letting us on the air at all. 
Listeners, we appreciate you and want to hear from you. Please send us your ideas at Jeremiah at thejeremiahshow.com or on Messenger, on Facebook, or Instagram. The show is produced by executive producer Jeremiah Higgins and me, your announcer, Tony Kelly. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.